this week obviously presented to to our community and to our world something that has become i guess in some ways far too commonplace um I know maybe you showed up this morning, you're looking for some answers. Maybe that's why you came to church this morning and you just, you know, what, what do we do? We, we were able to have a prayer meeting on Tuesday evening and we gathered, 30 or 40 of us gathered in here. It was, a, was, uh, was really a sweet time to just be together, uh, to seek the Lord, to sing some praise songs and, and to pray together, pray for our community. And, and I know that, that we, you know, during this time, we, we try to find some ways to be strong and to get through it. And, and there's, there's some of that, of course, that's just very healthy. We, we have to figure out ways to put one foot down in front of the other. And I know that some of you were directly affected by what happened at Marshall County High School. Maybe you went to school there. You know people that, that work there. Maybe you were there. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do know that in a community like ours, Callaway and Marshall, it, you know, the, the, the county lines just sort of blur and, and we're blended together quite a bit. And so what one uh, experiences, the other is affected by. And so uh, obviously a tragedy. I, I, I don't have answers for you in the sense of let me tile this up in a bow. And today, as the funerals take place, folks will be wanting answers. And I am in particular prayer today for those pastors who will try to preach those funerals. And what do they say? And uh, unimaginable uh, experience. But I go back to the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul was writing about his own experience. Something that he was dealing with that he didn't feel sufficient for. And that's how I felt all week. And I know that many of you just think, I, I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to say. And I have felt so inefficient, insufficient for this week. Um, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I, I would not exalt in my, myself a thorn in the flesh, or so that I would not exalt myself rather. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Something was going on in Paul's life. We don't exactly know what this was, whether it was physical, spiritual, whatever. Something was happening that he could not get free of. There was something that took place that he didn't know what to deal with, to do with, and he couldn't deal with it. And so he prayed, Lord, please make this like it never happened. Lord, take this away. And maybe you've prayed that prayer that, Lord, maybe tomorrow I can wake up and this was all just a dream, that it didn't happen. Maybe, Lord, you just would erase this and that stuff really didn't take place. And maybe you've said that about this situation or other things in your life. And then you realize it's not going away. This is real and it happened and I can't change it and it's not going away. And what do I do then? And our community has tried as best we can to rally around each other. And we're trying to be, as the key word has been, to be strong. And I think Paul probably tried on his own to be strong for a while. But what do you do when that runs out? Because trust me, it will run out. And it will run out quicker than you think. Because we can only be strong so far as we can pretend to be strong, right? He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. 
Therefore, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So because of Christ, I am pleased in weaknesses, in insults, in catastrophes, in persecutions, and in pressures. When I am weak, then I am strong. I've told you two things, I think, more than anything in my time here as a pastor in nine and a half years of this church. I've told you two things. One is about salvation and one is about life. Salvation is Jesus plus what? Do you know what it is? Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing is how we receive salvation. And I've also told you that, yes, there are times when God puts on you more than you can handle so that you and I will learn to trust God, this is more than our community can handle. And there is no amount of rallying around one another that can make us strong, although we should do those things. But we collectively must fall on our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, we are not strong enough for this so that Christ's power may reside in us because when we are weak, then God makes us strong. And so I don't know how you've processed any of this stuff. I don't know what you've done to try to get through it. But let me encourage you, do not miss the fact that when we are weak, God makes us strong. And for whatever situation you may be facing, it may not even be this deal with Marshall County. It may be something else that comes across your path and you say, I don't know how to deal with it. Get on your knees before the Lord, admit your weakness, and receive the strength that only Jesus Christ can provide you. You say, what does that mean? It's a miracle is what it means. It's supernatural strength that you and I cannot explain. And it is from the outside, not from within us, but from the outside in, only God can provide that kind of strength. And so I want to take time to pray for that community and for us as we've been affected by it as well. And so if you would, let's join our hearts together and maybe you just kind of pray. Feel free to pray out loud as I do. Pray there in a whisper, pray in your heart, whatever it may be. As I pray for them, you join me and we'll pray together uh, for our family and friends uh, here in our community in Marshall County. Lord, this morning we admit to you our weakness and not just to repeat Scripture, as if simply repeating Scripture will do anything for us. But Lord, we, we repeat Scripture this morning that we, we do not have the strength simply because it's true. And we call on you to give us strength that we don't have. Well, we know that we may never receive answers for why certain things happen. And we look for them, but we might not receive them. And this is more than we can deal with. So Lord, teach us to trust you. Lord, we know that this morning this is not about us. So, Lord, we, we pray for those families that are directly affected that today will bury children. For a school and a community that will never be the same. For teachers and faculty and everybody involved and first responders and those who have taken care of them at the hospital. Lord, who will never erase what's happened. Lord, we lift them up to you this morning. We pray that through those scars and those open wounds that may last for years, Lord, that you would minister your Holy Spirit, that you would give your strength, that you would be glorified even in that, that we might one day be able to boast, not in our great strength, but in what God did through all this. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you. You tell us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And so this morning we... We cast our own, and on behalf of those directly affected, we cast these cares upon you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you give us strength 
that lives would be changed through even a tragedy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, we'll let you know that if, if you need somebody to just kind of unload a little bit to, um, I promise you I don't have answers. Uh, so that's not going to be what you get as a bunch of simplistic stuff. Uh, but I promise you I'd be happy to sit and talk with you and listen. Lots of other folks here would be happy to do the same. So uh, be in prayer for them today. I believe funerals are back-to-back uh, this afternoon, and so very difficult time, obviously, to say the least. So um, before uh, all this happened, uh, if you remember, I guess it was late last week or maybe it was into early this week, the weather had kind of warmed up. You know, it's sunny outside today, and you walk in, and you think, oh boy, you know, it's, it's a little different, you know, coming out of that ice and snow and nastiness that we had. And some of it, I think, is still hanging around. It's going to, you know, it's, it's not going to give up the fight just yet. There's still those big piles of snow that have kind of hung around. But, but, uh, when the weather got warm, I texted Hank and I, and I said, uh, I said, hey man, I said, this is, this is baseball weather. It's baseball weather. And he said, Oh yeah, it is, you know, and and of course in our home, I mean there's you know, there's there's baseball there's base there's two seasons where there's baseball season or Christmas. I mean that's like that's it. You know, it's just that's all you got. You know, you got baseball season, you got Christmas season. That's you know, that's what we deal with. So so we've been we've been working out a little bit. We've been practicing. We come over here to the gym and we throw and we hit and we do some different things and and and, and this is the time of year, of course, when when baseball is right around the corner. I know you're excited, and so baseball is right. I mean, it's okay. It, you can be excited. It, it's right around the corner, and spring training will start here in just two or three weeks, and teams will start to report to Arizona and to Florida and all the places that we'd all love to live during the winter time, and they're going to go down there and and they're going to be getting ready for the season. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll try to identify some of the issues maybe that they're having, say, with their swings or or with their fielding or their throwing or or something along those lines. And so the, the managers and the coaches and as high school season starts and college season starts around here, they'll tell them the same old things and they're going to identify some of the cardinal sins in the game of baseball. You better not do these things. One of them, if you, if you don't know, here, here are a couple of cardinal sins. Really, I think for me, there are three main cardinal sins. One is never make the last out at third base. Don't do it. Don't be stupid. Do not make the last out at third base. You're already in scoring position at second. Take it easy right there. You're good enough. A hit still scores you. Do not make the last out at third base or you will never play again <laughs> or something like that. Okay, so that's how I frame it. Another is don't miss the signs. So when I'm rolling through the signs down at third base, don't miss the signs. What did he just give? I don't know what that was. What was that? Don't be that guy. Because if I put on the steal and you don't steal, I'm going to embarrass you from across the field. Hey, steal second base. That's a sign I just gave you. Pay attention next time we go over this stuff, will you? And I don't speak like that to kids. Yeah, I do. But anyway... Um, <clears throat> So, so don't, don't make the last out at third base. Don't miss the signs. And you'd better hustle all the time. Hank can tell you this. I have zero toleration for laziness. You're going to show up on this field, on my field. You come out here and be lazy. You better be hustling. And so those are some cardinal sins. And teams will try to make sure that the guys understand that. Here's the expectation. And then... They're going to do all they can to make sure that their swings and their fielding and all are exactly the way they should be. I just, I just happen to have a bat sitting here on the stage. You just, you ever need one? If you've seen a few good men, I always think better with my bat. But anyway, what they're going to do is they've got every tool available to them to analyze and to break down their swings. 
And so these guys will be on video and so on. And I try to do this with my own son and with, with other players. And we're going to look and we'll say, okay, now get in your stance. And I want you to work through this kind of stuff. And, and I'm going to throw you some pitches. And you, you hit. And, and let's see kind of how you look on video. And we break it down. I've got this cool app on my phone and my iPad. And it, it'll go in slow motion, one little frame at a time. Boy, we can break everything down. And what's even better is that you can put a video of somebody who's really, really good next to your own video, and you can see the difference. And you think, oh, man, I just need to quit right here. But I'll say this. When I coach my own sons, I tell them, we're not going to look at what Dad says. We're not going to look at what dad heard at a conference years and years ago or a coaching clinic. You know what we're going to look at? Hank, you could probably complete the sentence. We're going to look at what the best in the world do. And then we're going to try to do that. We're going to compare ourselves to the best in the world. I don't compare my sons to me because guess what? As much as I hate to admit it, I was not the best in the world. Man, that's, that's hard to admit. I was, I was okay, and that's kind of where it stopped. But we look at guys like Mike Trout, who is the best player in all of baseball right now. We're going to look at him and compare ourselves to him. And so this time of year, what I'm trying to do is help my sons understand, don't make these cardinal mistakes and make sure that you compare yourself to the best in the world. That's how you're going to get better. That's the answer to the baseball problems that you have. Avoid the cardinal sins and make sure you're tracking toward the best in the world. And when we look at our society and we say, well, what about the problems that are real? I mean, baseball problems, okay, whatever. But what about problems that are real? What about what happened on Tuesday? I mean, what's the answer to that? I mean, I know the answer to a baseball problem is we're going to look at it on video and we're going to make sure that we compare ourselves to the best in the world. But what about the problem that we saw manifest itself on Tuesday? What's the answer to that? Now, without trying to sound simplistic, I want to make it very, very simple that the problem in our society is not just that we're not nice enough to each other or that we don't tolerate one another at the proper rate, or, or that, that we, just, we're just, we just all need to maybe choose to, to be kind. The problem, without being simplistic, is a very simple one, and it's called sin. The problem for baseball players is committing a cardinal sin or not doing what the best in the world do. And the problem for us in life is that we don't do what the best in the world did, and that is live to perfection. The answer to the big and the small problems in our world is sin. That's the answer. Why are things so messed up? It's because of sin. I'll be honest with you, there's no law that can fix sin. We are... Noble when we try to do different things to prevent and to punish those that do wrong and bad things. But if we fail to address what is deeper, then we're just going to keep putting band-aids on a gaping wound. It's only when a heart is changed by Jesus Christ, when He lives through you and me, it's only then that we are forgiven, that we are changed, that we are made new, that the old is all gone, that the problem can be fixed the cause of every problem that we know of. And I hope to show you that from Scripture this morning. If you've got a Bible handy, you want to turn with me to the book of Genesis. 
We're looking at Bible stories this year. Bible stories you thought you knew. Maybe you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you didn't. Either way, you've probably heard some of these stories. We're going to look this morning at the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. You probably know this story to some degree. It's been popularized in, in culture and so on. The forbidden fruit, if you will. Some things that we know about, even if you don't know the story of the Bible. We pick up the story this morning as it begins in verse 1 of chapter 3. Adam and Eve live in this perfect place. And everything between them is perfect. God has created them, placed them in the Garden of Eden, and everything is exactly the way that it should be. And then there's chapter 3. Then we pick up what sin is all about, and what it does, and what it requires. Uh, before we read this particular scripture, I, I, I just you'll see there on your outline, I want to make very clear from the outset just the first truth about what sin is, the truth about sin. The first thing that I want you to write down, don't miss this point. If you miss this point, you've missed the whole, the whole thing. The first truth about sin is that it is rebellion. It is rebellion. It, it's not just an error. Okay, it's not just, well, coach, I missed the sign. I, I didn't quite understand. Sin, either as we exist in a state of sin or as we commit sin, sin is plain and simple rebellion. We saw the sign and we said no. Or we willfully did not pay attention and we said, eh, doesn't matter. It is rebellion against God in any non-conformity to His perfection, whether we mean to or not, both in our existence and in what we do, sin is rebellion. Let me put it this way. We are born into a state of rebellion. We are not born neutral. A lot of times in our world we want to say, oh, well, you know, they, they had the chance to be good and they just chose. No, 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 no. We are born into a state of rebellion. The Bible makes that very clear. We are born into sin. We are born sinners. It is as a result of this particular Bible story that we see that the rest of humanity from this point forward is born into a state of sin. So it is not just what we do, but who we are that needs to be changed. Now, I repeat that from time to time because I don't want you to miss it. Cleaning up your act on the outside is just conformity to some law. But God says he wants conformity in our hearts. And so in our heart, that's who we are. That's what needs to be changed. So anyway, sin is rebellion. Now, what I want you to follow along with, you see there's some space there underneath sin is rebellion, okay? Maybe you want to write down some of these different, different words and so on as we kind of work through the progression in chapter 3 of here's the way that sin kind of comes about, okay? You've got verse 1. Look at what it says here. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Write down the word denial or doubt. You can put a slash if you want to. This is kind of under what sin is rebellion. Here's kind of, here's kind of the anatomy of it. Here's how it goes. Okay? Do you see what, what the serpent does first? There's a, there's a seed of doubt. There's some denial. Now, 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 hold on a second. Did God really say that? I deal with people all the time. That, well, you know, my interpretation of this is that here's what God really meant. The Bible needs interpretation, but God's word never changes. Did God really say? I mean, is that really what 
what he what he means. I mean, you can't eat from any tree. Look, well, look what he look what he does. There's a, there's a minimizing really of God's command here. What the serpent does. I mean, God really didn't say that, right? I mean, that's you know, that's just sort of the Bible is more like a guidebook. You know, it's just some good suggestions for moral living, right? I mean, it, you know, you take what you need and you discard what you don't, and so on. I mean, God's really not that serious about what he said, right? And then there's a maximizing here of God's strictness. Look at this. What, look what the serpent says. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Do you know what God had said? How many trees were there they weren't to eat from? One. What's the seed of doubt? Man, God doesn't want you to do anything. I mean, is that really what he said? I mean, man, he's unreasonable. I mean, he's borderline cruel. I mean, how in the world are you supposed to survive if you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You see what the serpent is doing. So you've got this denial, this doubt, and you've got deception. These are all going to start with D, by the way, as you work through this. This is so good. So good. It took me like a month to come up with these. Are y'all still awake? Are we good? Okay, this is good stuff right here. All right, anyway. Killing me. Deception. Look what the woman says in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not touch it, and you must not eat it, or touch it, or you will die. And then look what the serpent says. You will not die. I mean, in fact, look at verse 5. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's deception. This is not a big deal, he says. In fact, God's really kind of holding out on you here. If you just do this, if you give in to this desire, then you'll be like God. You, you'll know everything. You will have full enlightenment. Everything in your life will be better if you just do this. God's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I get what he said, sort of, but it's not, it's not like that. There's deception. And Eve begins to take the bait. This distortion of God's character and God's word, that he's somehow a monster just wanting to keep you from living your life. Young people, if, if you pay attention in here at all, I want you to see that deception doesn't come from God, but comes from the lie of Satan and of sin. God has a life for you that I can't promise you'll be free from disaster just like we experienced on Tuesday. But I know this, that Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest, he said. And that's not the American dream. It's far beyond that. And it's far better than that. And deception would say to you, eh, I don't know, I mean, you know, you just need to do your own thing. God, yeah, that's cool. Go to church on Sunday, check that box off, and once you graduate, you kind of move on from that. Don't worry about it after that. Because God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to live. And so we have this denial or this doubt that's planted. And then deception comes into play. And then there's desire. The woman saw that the tree, look at verse 6, the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Do you realize that sin is always appealing? Always. I don't care what kind of sin we're talking about. We're not just talking about big, bad, ugly sins that you think of. I'm talking about just basic selfishness. You know why selfishness is so appealing? Because it makes me happy. I like what I like. I like my stuff. I like my stuff to be in a certain place, in a certain order. Don't mess with my stuff. Know what I mean? I like to say and do what I like to say and do. Whenever I feel like saying and doing it. Why? Because it makes me feel good. I like it. 
I desire to feel what I want to feel, to experience what I want to experience, and to have what I want to have. The Apostle John wrote about it in his second letter. He said, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. And here's what he says, Everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, that stuff is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. He gives three categories there. He talks about what we want to experience, the lust of the flesh. Yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to experience that. I like that. And then he talks about the lust of the eyes. That's, that's what we want to have, the things that attract us, the stuff we like to have. And then he talks about the pride in one's lifestyle, how we want to feel, our status. Nobody likes to feel low, do they? We all like to feel above somebody. And Eve begins to travel down this slippery slope of desire. The serpent offered her something desirable, appealing to her senses. And all along, all she can see is that, forgetting what God had provided for her. And then there comes the point of decision. You see what it says in verse 6? She saw it was good for food and delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she ran as far away as she could because she knew it wasn't God's will for her to eat from this tree. And she didn't want to to go against the glory and and, and the word of God. Do Do you see... So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was standing there doing nothing, and he ate it. Comes to the point of decision. Satan can tempt us, but he can't force us to do anything. The devil made me do it? Not hardly. Guess what? I saw what I wanted to do, and I did it. Period. End of story. I think part of the issue in our world today, for whatever reason, is that we are all a victim. Therefore, none of us are responsible for our actions. If I can blame someone else for what they have done to me, and therefore I do this to them in response or in return, I am no longer on the hook for those things. But do you know what? In my sober moments, when I am really thinking clearly and willing to admit the truth, nobody makes me do anything. Well, you made me mad. No, I chose to be mad. You know, nobody can make me angry. I'm choosing to be angry. Nobody can make you do anything. They came to the point of decision where they decided to do what God had said not to do. And guess what? The last D word there is disaster. You know what happens after that? Verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They, they, they have shame. And so they try to cover it. Pretend like this didn't happen. Maybe God won't notice as he walks around in the garden. And then they realize, wait a minute, he's going to notice that we've got things covering our bodies that weren't there before. Because God's pretty sharp. He's going to notice that. And so guess what? When God shows up in verse 8, you know what they do instead? Instead of coming out and just kind of saying, maybe God won't notice, they hide. And God says, hey guys, where you at? He knew, by the way. Hey, where, where are you? And Adam says, uh, we're over here in the bushes because we heard you and we hid ourselves because we were naked. And the conversation plays out. 
And God says, who told you that you were naked? Where did your shame and where did this exposure come from? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to? And he knew they already had. And he looks at Adam and he says, what have you done? And Adam, being just an incredible guy that he was, standing next to his beautiful wife, before God, having the chance to own it, he just points at Eve. He's like, wasn't me. In fact, he says, this woman, didn't call her by a name, this woman, God, that you gave me, like, she's the one. And men have been ducking responsibility ever since. <laughs> and we laugh, but it's true. And God goes to Eve and he says, what have you done? And of course, what does she say? Serpent. Wasn't me. And of course, the serpent's got nowhere to go. You know, it's just disaster. There's shame and hiding. Then they blame each other and blame God for their circumstances. And then we see the curse that comes. Because God addresses the serpent and he says, you're cursed and now you'll crawl on your belly, which is why you should hate snakes completely. Cursed from the beginning. I don't know if that's the right interpretation of Genesis 3 or not, but man, I like that interpretation of Genesis 3 because it gives me justification in not liking snakes. Anyway, some curse came on the serpent. And then there was a, a curse told about the woman that you're going to have pain in childbirth. And fellas, listen, when you, when you get a paper, I got a paper cut right now. When you get a paper cut and you milk it for all it's worth, come on. If you're married to a woman that's given birth to a child and you're, oh, you know, honey, would you take care of me? I just, man, I don't even want to imagine what childbirth is like. You get an epidural or something, but I, before that, it doesn't, you know, it, it's rough. I've seen it four times. It is rough. So Eve has given some pain in childbirth that may not have been as intense before. And then she's told, you're going to have some problems in your marriage. You want to know where marriage problems come from? Didn't happen before sin as a result of sin. And that's where we have problems. They're going to jockey for position. They're going to fight with one another over who's going to be in charge and who's going to look the best. And boom, 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 here we go. And then he turns to the man and he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And he said, you'll work it, but it won't give you the same yield. And you'll eat from it, but you're going to have to work your tail off to do it. And you're going to sweat like crazy. And those of you that are farmers say amen to that. Man, it just doesn't seem to, to work like it used to. And so there's this disaster, this curse that comes from all of this. And we see in chapter 4, the second little part here. Sin is rebellion. Now that's the main point I really want you to get. I mean, I, that's the bad news. But don't think it's just your rebellion, it's just your issue, because sin spills everywhere. Our rebellion is not localized. It destroys individuals. Adam and Eve here, shame, guilt, things they never experienced. In chapter 4, we see Cain, the oldest son of Adam and Eve. And he's a, he's a farmer. He's like a crop farmer. And his brother Abel, his younger brother Abel, is a, is a livestock cattle farmer. And they come to the point where they're both going to give a gift to the Lord, their tithe and their offering. And Cain brings something to the Lord, but Abel brings something out of the first 
and the best of what he had. And so God receives Abel's offering and Cain's offering, though. He says, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Cain gets mad. And God says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you despondent? If you had done what was right, you wouldn't have anything to worry about, he says. But he tells him, sin is crouching at your door. It, it wants to master you, but you must control it. And so Cain, an individual whose life is destroyed because he's so bound up in his anger and his depression, his despondency and his temptation with sin, you can see the individual lives that sin destroys. Some of you know people. I've known three young men in the last 18 months who died of drug overdoses. I watched them grow up in my home church, young men in their mid to late 20s. I watched every one of them grow up, and I know their families well, three of them from my home church in Louisville in 18 months. It destroys individuals. And it may not destroy you physically, but it sure will get you emotionally and mentally. Sin does that to you. It destroys families, as you know. In the case of Cain and Abel, literally one brother killed another. Your family may have been torn apart by somebody's sin, somebody's adultery, somebody's abuse, somebody's addiction, somebody's words, somebody's neglect, somebody's jealousy. It will destroy families. Do you know the reason you fought on the way to church this morning with your family? Wait a minute. Nobody nobody did here, right? Yeah, the reason the people going to First Baptist this morning fought on the way to church is because there's sinners over there at First Baptist. Sinners. Tell my friend Keith Inman I said it. There's sinners over there. You realize that every single problem in our families results from somebody's sin? It's just the way it is. Sin, I think, also destroys societies as we look around and see. Look, look real quick. I want you to look at something in, in chapter 4. I want you to, to actually just look at the words here. In chapter 4, look at verse 23. 23 and 24. It's talking about just how sin spills and eventually it gets to where it starts to destroy societies. Lamech said to his wives, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. This is poetry, by the way. Do you see how it's kind of given a different margin and size and the way the shape in your Bible? This is poetry. So he, he is, I mean, he's proud of this. For I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, that was God's, what God said about uh, Cain and his uh, relationship with the Lord after, after he killed Abel. Anyway, if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times or 70 times seven. Some of your versions may say. You realize what he's doing? He's bragging about what he will do to somebody if they mess with him. And apparently, as he stands off in poetic form, spouting these things off, that was applauded in his society. He's a man's man. I'll get you. I'll take care of you. Sin has become, in our society, normalized, glamorized. And it's destroyed us. We are lost. And we don't know what to do. And then chapter 5. We, we get the final little portion of this. Now, not only is sin rebellion, not only does it spill everywhere, but, but it brings death. Sin brings death. Now, don't pack up just yet. I'm almost done. Look at chapter 5. If you have the birth of sin in chapter 3, the rebellion, you have the spilling of sin everywhere in chapter 4, you have the penalty for sin in chapter 5. 
Adam's life lasted 930 years, verse 5 says. And then what? Then he died. Seth's life, verse 8, lasted 912 years. What? Then he died. Over and over and over and over and over in chapter 5, and I think that's the point of chapter 5, then or and he died. The penalty for sin, God said, you will surely die. Don't believe me? Check back with me in two chapters. Here's what happened. Then he died over and over. And the time to die grows shorter and shorter and shorter. And then, beginning in chapter 6 through around chapter 9, you have the flood, where the real penalty for sin is seen. There is a physical death, obviously, that is certain. No one escapes the physical death that our sin collectively has brought to our world and to our bodies. But we can, the Bible tells us, escape the spiritual death that we're born into. Jesus called it being born again. You see down there at the bottom, I want you to know that sin is awful and it's bad. But it doesn't have the final word. Because the blank down there at the bottom, I want you to write the name of Jesus in the blank. Jesus will restore. Jesus restores what sin has destroyed. Jesus restores what sin destroys. Chapter 3, verse 15. God talking to them about the curse of their sin. And and he tells the serpent, one day, someday, there will come a descendant of this woman who will rise up and will strike you on the head. He will crush you. It's a preview of Jesus. The first inkling of evangelism. One day, there will come a pinch hitter, God says. You've been getting worn out by that fastball that you can't hit. It's called sin, and it just keeps striking you out over and over and over and over. Man, you've tried so hard to perfect your swing against it. I'm going to do better this time. And I'm going to stand in the box, and here it comes, and there it goes. Every single time it strikes me out, and I can't do anything about it. And I walk back to the dugout dejected and not knowing what to do. And well, here comes my turn at bat again. And maybe this time, Lord, I'll do better. And maybe this time leaving church today, I'm just going to get my act together. And sin's not going to have any power over me anymore. And Lord, today's the day. I'm just going to get it together. If you walk away today still holding the bat and not handing it to the pinch hitter whose name is Jesus, you've missed the point entirely. You have absolutely missed the point because today is not about trying harder in the batter's box. Today is about admitting I can't do it. And apart from Jesus taking my place and hitting a home run in place of all my strikeouts, I am done. And guess what? Not only does he step up and hit a home run on the cross, but he takes us and picks us up and carries us around the bases with him. And we get to share in what he did for us. It's not as if he's over there doing it. He comes to us, picks us up, stands in our place, knocks the ball out of the park and carries us around the bases and says, you don't have to play the game anymore. Let me do it for you. You may have never struck out really in a baseball game, but let me tell you, it's awful. I don't like it. I did it quite a bit. But I guarantee you this, you and I have struck out in life and we've tried to do it on our own. 
and we keep messing up over and over and over and we try hard and maybe we do a little better for a little while and then the same old thing gets us again. The answer is not to pick up the bat and swing harder and try harder. The answer is to put it down and say, Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. The answer is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And the answer, not only for your life as a whole to be forgiven of sin, is repentance and faith, Lord Jesus, save me. But the answer for the sin that you face right now, the sin that is knocking at your door, guess what the answer is? Lord Jesus, save me from that sin too. And Lord Jesus, from that sin, and the sin that tempts me, and every sin that comes my way, Lord Jesus, save me from that sin. And so the invitation today from this Bible story is not, hey, you know what, do better than Eve did. You know what? Just don't eat what God said not to eat. The answer is to lay down the bat and say, Lord Jesus, I can't do it. Save me from all my sin. Let's pray together. For some this morning, as we just kind of bow at the close, maybe you... You have some questions. You've got something you want to deal with. Be happy to stick around a little bit after the service and talk with you. If you'd like some prayer, we can spend just a moment. If you want to walk down, I'll be standing down front. Or you just want to pray by yourself. But lay down the bat. Don't try harder. Quit trying altogether. And allow the Lord Jesus to take your place in life, in death, in resurrection. That's why He came. He loves you. And only He can do what you can't do. Our Lord, thank You for taking our place on the cross. And today, Lord, we lay it down, knowing that we will continue to strike out, even on our best days. So, Lord, pick us up. Take us into the batter's box and hit one out for us. And thank you, Lord, for carrying us around the bases. Solve our problems, Lord, by cleansing us from sin. We place our faith in you. I pray for those that need to simply repent and believe that today would be the day that tomorrow, Lord, they would say, Lord, save me from this sin. Keep me, Lord, where you want me to be. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love, for your life, your death, your resurrection. That's our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.